to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. You are in for a real treat today. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with the brilliant Gabby Stroud about her new book, The Things That Matter Most. Gabby is a freelance writer and novelist and recovering teacher. After years of juggling the demands of primary classroom, she made the painful decision to leave the profession she loved. In 2016, her critical commentary of the Australian education system was published in the Griffith Review, edition 51, Fixing the System which went on to be shortlisted for a Wakely Award. Gabby's smash hit memoir, Teacher, was shortlisted for the Biography Book of the Year at the 2018 ABAI Awards and continues to contribute to the National Dialogue on Education. In 2020, her book, Dear Parents, challenges parents and caregivers to reframe their perception of our education system and to consider the purpose of schooling. Her latest book and the book we will be discussing today, The Things That Matter Most, is a must-read for anyone that cares deeply about our young people and the big-hearted humans that keep the education system going. In this conversation, we discuss why Gabby chose to write this book, what are the things that matter most, how we can better support our school staff, and so much more. Please note, we talk in detail about the book and there will be plenty of spoilers. So if you haven't had a chance to read The Things That Matter Most, please press pause and return once you've finished the book. Trust me, once you finish this book, you will want to explore the themes in greater depth and we will be here for you ready when you are. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gabby Stroud. Gabby, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about your brilliant new book, The Things That Matter Most. What do you hope readers will gain from reading this book? Such a good question. I write stories for myself, first of all, so I'm never really thinking about what a reader's going to get from a book when I'm writing it. And I think I probably want readers to get from it the same thing I got from writing it, which is the understanding of what it's like to be a teacher. And I think when I was writing this book, I was just processing many of my own experiences. And so I want this book to read as though it's a teacher's life. So I want readers to close the book and feel as though they're somewhat changed. Something in them is not quite the same because that's what it is to be a teacher. You go through a year with kids and you have learnt and grown so much and something about you is not quite the same. So I think there's definitely that element to it. I really hope too that readers will see the beauty in this book. I know it is a sad book. 
and a and a challenging book, but it's also a beautiful story. And I was trying to make something beautiful out of difficult circumstances because you know I left the classroom and I left teaching, and that made me feel really sad and it was challenging. And so to make something beautiful out of that has been feels like a bit of a triumph. And so I hope that readers will get that sense of of beauty in in the story as well. Well, that's exactly what I got, Gabby. As I was reading this book, I was in awe because I had never seen in an article, in a blog, in a book, someone articulate the invisible nature of teaching in such a visible and tangible way. There were passages that I read that went straight to my heart. I am in this space. I feel like I'm opening this gate. I feel like I'm in this classroom. And it was so powerful. There were moments of utter beauty. And those moments that as a teacher you get to witness and see and to be able to share that with people who aren't teachers reading the book, but also that pain of really deeply caring about somebody and wishing that circumstances were different. So you captured the beauty and sometimes the brutality of working in education in such a powerful way. And it's the first book that I literally couldn't breathe. There was a part of it. I feel like I am literally here. And we will talk about that a little later. So before we get into this, why do you think this book is so important, not just for teachers, but for the general public to read? I think it is important for the general public to read because we do need to better understand teachers and schools and the work that we ask teachers to do. And I like to teach, when I was in the classroom, I like to teach through stories. I I love starting a lesson with a story or an anecdote, maybe from my own life or, you know, from a book or something like that. I think narrative is a really powerful way of drawing people in and especially children. But obviously, if people are readers, narrative is, you know, a really strong way of, of teaching. And that's why this book is important for anyone is because when you go into this story, you see yourself in the story. You start to sort of imagine, like you're saying, you know, oh, I feel like I'm in the classroom and I'm getting the feels for these students and I'm starting to care about them. And when the reader experiences that, then they're starting to understand that's what it's like to be a teacher because teachers are living that story every day. Many of the little things that happened in that in the story, they're little pieces of my own life that I've just sort of embellished and added in. So there's so much truth in this book. And it's important that we understand the work that teachers do and the way schools function, because when we understand that, we can make improvements, we can support our students, we can support our kids, we can support teachers. But when we don't have an understanding of that, we're detached from it. And it's a very theoretical kind of way of thinking about it. It remains sort of an abstract place, a place where we send our kids and we're not quite connected to it. But when we understand it better, then we can do better by it. We can serve it better. We can look after it better. And I really think that that's important because as we all know, 
our schools are in crisis at the moment. Our teachers are in crisis. And so there's a, a very real need for us to better understand what's happening out there so that we can make improvements and make it a more healthy environment and a healthier place for our, our kids and for our teachers. Yes. And when I finished reading the book, I had a moment of, now, everybody in the world needs to read this book and then we can iron out some of that detachment that we find where we look to teachers to solve all the problems of the wider community and blame them, not doing enough, this and this and this. That. Well, hang on. Let's actually look at what teachers are doing each and every day and how they are literally making the impossible possible, a completely unworkable situation work. And let's hold them with higher regard because education is so powerful. And in order for a young person to be educated, they need to feel safe and connected to their teacher. And so the teacher needs to feel safe and connected to their community. So let's go to St. Margaret's Primary School. Could you set the scene of this beautiful story? So St. Margaret's Primary School, it's a Catholic school. It's in a fictional town that I imagined is a little bit like any regional town in Australia. It's a small town and it has extreme temperatures and that's almost sort of reflective of some of the extremes within the town. You've got some very wealthy families, you've got some very vulnerable families. And as we all know as teachers, all those families send their kids to school. And as a teacher, you've got all those kids sitting in front of you and you've got to bring them together as a learning community and take them on a journey. The story follows a small cast of characters that work at the school. There's three teachers and then there's Bev from the front office. So Tyson's our first year out graduate, early career teacher. He's pumped. He's come from the city. He can't wait to be a teacher. He's teaching kindergarten. The little kids, oh, he's got this beautiful romanticized version of what it's going to be about. He's spent the summer painting the classroom, preparing resources. He's so overprepared. And yet as he walks in on that very first day, he has that moment that I believe every first year out teacher has, which is where they go, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to teach anyone anything. I may have been to uni and I may have been awarded a certificate, but I've got no idea. He's just flooded with panic. Along with that, though, Tyson starts to wonder if maybe he's not going to fit in in this community because Tyson's also queer. And while he can see that there's, uh, you know, a progressive open-mindedness Uh, out there publicly. We've had the yes vote, you know, all of that sort of thing. He just has a sense that maybe in this very small community, maybe perhaps he may not be welcomed. Maybe he doesn't belong. And that sitting along the idea of, I don't know what I'm doing as in this very first job in my career, really makes him feel quite uh, anxious and scared and worried if he's made the wrong decision about coming to this school and about being a teacher. And then you've got Bev. She's the next character we meet. And Bev's, look, let's not sugarcoat it. We've, we're limited for time. We'll just say it. She's the dragon at the front office. And as we read this book, we start to realize, and I hope better understand why sometimes our office admin staff may come across as dragons in the front office. They are the gatekeeper for so many things and they are trying to protect and support so many people 
the imposition and the ask on those staff is enormous and they are only ever doing the best they can with the resources they've got. So Bev's this uh, woman who says things to the kids, you know, the kids come and ask for the keys to the sports shed and she'll say, bring them straight back or I'll cut off all your fingers and toes. And she's really not joking. (laughs) She's trying to run a tight ship. But as we get to know Bev, we see that she's got a heart of gold and we also see that she's got a very serious health condition that's uh, on her mind. And we start to wonder if she is going to continue prioritising the school and her work over her own health. We really see her commitment and we start to see that this dragon who supposedly hates the place actually loves the place and it is her whole life. And then we meet Sally Ann, and Sally Ann is the quintessential primary school teacher in my mind. She's the one that if you Google primary school teacher and search for an image, you get Sally Ann. It's usually someone who's, you know, young. They're often, they often have blonde hair, I notice, and they're sitting um, there holding a book open, reading to children, and they just have a glow about them as though reading to these children is the most delightful Thing they've ever done in their life. You know, what's not shown in that image is that that teacher's going, there's a smell of fart in the air. And I'm pretty sure two kids haven't come in from recess and where the heck are they? And am I on lunch duty or recess duty today? You know, what we don't see is the 50 million things going through that stock image in their mind. And that's Sally Ann. She's got a lot going on in her mind while she executes the job absolutely perfectly. She's just brilliant at what she does. But Sally Ann's longing for a baby of her own and it's just not coming. It's just not happening for her. And she's starting to get really tired of mothering other people's children. And we start to see some resentment building up in this teacher who has so much to offer. And then we meet Derek. And Derek is the uh, assistant principal of the school And I would love to work for Derek. He has been keeping his eyes on the things that matter most for his whole career. He's focused on the kids. He's focused on his lessons. He's focused on his colleagues. He's focused on community. And that's where his heart is at. That's where he puts his attention. But this year, this school is up for an audit. It's a registration year. And so it's time to produce all the documentation for the past four years It's on Derek to collate that data and bring it all together and have it ready for the panel when they come to inspect. And the truth is that while Derek has been busy caring about the things that matter most, he has not been doing the paperwork. He doesn't have his own programs for the last four years. He hasn't got his evaluations. He hasn't got records of professional development. And so we start to see him have a real moral and ethical conundrum of what the heck have I been doing? what is teaching these days. I've been so busy focused on what I thought mattered and yet I haven't done what's meant to be done and I could potentially lose my job if I don't produce this documentation. So that's the parameters of the story. All these individual teachers with hearts of gold, many things on their mind, we see the humanness of them and they're all bundled together in this little town that I've called Boltford. And then we've got Lionel Merrick and his little sister, Lacey. And they sort of make cameo appearances throughout the book. And even these little snippets we get of them, you just fall in love with them. Lionel, especially, he's the kid who loves to come to school. He is the kid who 
when you're out on playground duty, he has a chat with you and he says, how's your day been? He's just a likable, lovable kid. He just doesn't cause any trouble. He's so enthusiastic and he's got a a really lovely sense of humour too. And as we learn about these kids, Lionel and his sister Lacey, through the lens of the teachers, we as the readers start to piece together that things might not be quite right for Lionel and Lacey. And so we're watching and reading with a sense of urgency, hoping that these teachers are going to piece together the clues that have been given to realise that something needs to be done about the Merricks because that family is in trouble and we see them slipping through the cracks. So. That's the premise of the story, These this beautiful cast of characters. I just created this cast of characters and popped them in a school. And, you know, if you just go into a school, you'll find stories. So that's the premise of the things that matter most. And each of these characters, we just fall in love with. Each of these characters, I feel like I've worked with. I feel like I have taught. I feel like we've had these conversations, you've had times where you think, do they even like kids? Like, honestly, this is just hard work. And then you get to know them. You think, actually, they're working really hard to make sure that all of the families can actually pay their bills and they're going over backwards. And I love how you've highlighted the beautiful humanness of the adults working in education because we can often, as teachers and members of the public, look at people just from this 2D model as the outward appearance, the external of what they're doing. And that was a beautiful example that you shared that, you know, the picture of a teacher reading a book. And all we know as educators that there's so much more than the book. It's kind of like as a parent, there's so much more than picking the pram. There is so much more that goes to it. And you've beautifully highlighted all of the questions that teachers have about themselves each day. Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Should I be doing more of my admin? Should I be caring more? Should I be caring less? Am I too invested? Am I not invested enough? And all of this that goes on as we're working to the best of our ability. It's such a relational job. When we teach, we're in relationship with the students that we teach. And I don't know about anyone else out there, but if I'm in a relationship, you know, a romantic relationship, a friendship relationship, a family relationship, I need to bring myself. I need to bring who I am. I can't, you know, relationships aren't like a job where you just compartmentalize things and you go, just bring this aspect of myself. Relationships require your heart. They require your personality, your sense of humor. You have to bring yourself to it. And yet teaching asks us to be doing relational work. And so the challenge then is how much of ourselves can we bring into this relationship and how important is that? And I would argue that it's wholly important. It's fundamentally important. When we ask teachers to not bring themselves to their teaching, it something is lacking. And that's what I hear these days with these scripted programs that teachers are asked to deliver and just any sort of automated teaching that they're required to deliver, the teacher themselves feels like, well, what do I do with me? Because I'm trying to forge a connection with these learners. It's important that they know something of me so they can trust me and feel safe to engage with the learning. There's the challenge of that though, isn't there? Because teachers do have 
big, busy lives. They do have health issues. They do have pregnancies that are failing. They do have, you know, sexual identities that may not be welcomed at school. So how much of that do they have to compartmentalize to be able to come in and do this relational work? And at what cost is that compartmentalizing and that shutting down? And how do they then get the time and space to care for those parts of themselves that they're not allowed to bring to school? It's really, really complex. And I don't think teachers get enough time to think about that and to just allow themselves compassion to sort of say that bit of this job is really hard. You know, there's just not enough time allocated to respecting that and and acknowledging that and and dwelling in that and just giving them time to sort of go, that bit's hard. And it makes me think of these moments throughout the story where you see teachers just chatting in their classroom. They've gone to get something if it's a stapler or something for the students. And they're the moments where you see the characters just settle and have a little bit of a chat. And that takes me to my teaching experience that there are times where I felt like I was struggling. I was the only one who couldn't keep on top of it. Everybody looked like they were keeping on top of it. And when I had an opportunity to have a chat, just an informal chat with an experienced teacher that had the wisdom, I felt like I was drinking from the font of knowledge. I could have sat there all day and listened to their wisdom because I felt so supported by them in those moments. And it's those pockets of conversation throughout the school that are just invaluable in keeping us afloat. Mm, Absolutely. And we know that teaching is a reflective practice. We know that the research shows that. But when and where do we give teachers time and space to have that reflection? And it happens best in those informal, incidental conversations with our colleagues. And yet we we just don't allow that. We we constantly keep putting our teachers into meetings and we put them in spaces where we put a person up the front who's going to tell them how to suck eggs when really what they need is just time to just meet and chat, not produce a document, not evaluate anything, not listen to someone, not make notes, just quite simply to just relax and chat and talk and and sit at those fonts of knowledge and and take those anxious questions. And also too, you know, I knew when I was an experienced teacher that there's a lot to be gained from sitting with those new grads who are so wet behind the ears and so brimming with enthusiasm and to sort of chuckle at them and with them a little and sort of, oh, grasshopper, you've so much to learn. But how inspiring is that enthusiasm? And they've got so much energy. They're the ones that are willing to say, I'll make that resource. I've got a copy of that. So like there's so much to be gained from letting them do that. But if we just don't let teachers have that time to be together, that natural, beautiful ecosystem, it just doesn't get to form and flourish. And I just think that's just such a shame. It's just, it's devastating when you think about it, what we're losing by not offering that very simple opportunity of time and space given to teachers. Yeah, imagine what would be possible if people working in schools had the time to feel their feelings and think about their thinking to really process these human elements so then we can be present in the classroom because we're there, we're with our young people, we're not struggling to try and process all the other things. And what really struck me as I read the book 
is the power of context. You know, I've had the privilege of working in some big independent schools in the cities, and I've also had the privilege of working in a school just like St. Margaret's. And what I have noticed is sometimes it's these smaller schools where the connection is so strong. You will see staff go to the staff room and do trivia and laugh together and really have that collaboration because they know we have to work together to make sure Johnny gets to lunchtime without hurting anybody. And you really have to work together. And I've also noticed that sometimes when schools are so big and feel a bit more corporate and there's so many operations happening and there's so many people and there's so many hoops to jump that it can feel a little bit disconnected as staff. It can feel almost competitive because people are competing for that next job, the next thing. I'd like to help, but if I help, maybe I'm putting myself in a position where I won't be able to get that rise. It's really interesting that different contexts bring out different sides of us. Absolutely. It's Dylan Williams from the UK who is an educational guru. I believe it's his question that I'm going to quote now, but that idea of a better question to ask than what works is what matters. And he goes on to say, because we can make a strong argument that says everything works somewhere, but it doesn't always work everywhere. And that's where context matters because, you know, if we take the example of my excellent idea of having teachers get together to just have time to chat. If I was to say, okay, everywhere across Australia, there should be a one hour staff meeting where you put all the staff in together and they all talk for an hour. That might work somewhere. It might work in a school like Boltford that's small and intimate and in a regional community, but it's not going to work in your larger corporate feeling sort of school because, you know, there'll be too many people in the room. A better question would be, instead of saying what works, oh, Gabby Stroud's idea of teachers talking, what matters? So what matters to the teachers at this school is that they get time together to talk about all the students, all the things that are on their mind, all their feelings, and it's just time for them and they do it as a whole staff. But what matters to this school that's bigger and larger with different constraints? Well, what matters here is that we build smaller teams so we allow for smaller pockets of conversation, smaller group that meet more frequently for less amount of time, something like that. Context really matters. And we find the context by asking what matters, which is kind of, you know, links beautifully to the title of my book. You know, what are the things that matter most? Because they matter differently in different school contexts. And what matters most can get lost in the intensity and the pressure that we're experiencing in schools. So it was this book that really honed in that what matters most is the humans, taking care of the humans within our system, our students, our support staff, our teachers. And as we heard earlier, Lionel was a student that really, from that first moment, the meeting at the gate, I thought, oh, I'm in love. Like this is a student that is so likable, is so warm that you're happy to see. Can you share a little bit about his story and how his life unfolds? Lionel appears at school as though as though things are okay. 
he's he's good at that and he's got lovely relational skills. Lionel's good at helping other people shine. And if I think about it, if Lionel was to grow up, he'd probably make a lovely teacher because that's something that teachers do. But as we read the book, we discover that Lionel's family, it has, it has been a family that's been functional and has been managing, but they have been living on the other side of the bridge. And in this town of Boltford, if you live on the other side of the bridge, chances are you're in that low socioeconomic bracket. So there's a lot of single family, single parents over there. There's a lot of refugees now over there. There's a lot of Indigenous families over there. And Bev herself, who we learn has been through a time of crisis, her home is on the other side of the bridge as well. And just simply because they're in that low socioeconomic bracket, Lionel's family is vulnerable right from the get-go. And then some changes happen in his family and his situation sort of goes from bad to worse. And Lionel is struggling to know how much of that you bring to school. So he's trying to protect his family. He's got a, a very strong sense that there are problems at home that it's best not to let other people know about. And we don't know whether his mum has told him that or whether he's just in, used his intuition to pick that up. But my experience of teaching those vulnerable kids is they're their defense mechanisms are incredible. They are just their their ability for self-preservation and protection of their family is beyond my comprehension. And I've seen that in children that have been very, very young and very, very small. So I imagined what's that like for a kid who's in year six and he's got the smarts, he's, he's clever enough to, to pick things up. What we start to see is Lionel giving out clues that are really quite sort of incidental. You know, there are things about how lunches are packed and, you know, his health sort of declining. And we hear from Lacey after some abstract haircuts present themselves that, you know, Lionel's even had to do the haircuts at home. And all the while as a teacher, they're watching him and they're sort of going, what is it? Should we be reporting this? What's happening right now? Is this just sort of a funny anecdote of something that happened at home? Or is this a case of mum forgot the lunch once? Or is this something more serious and more sinister? And it was interesting, Meg, when I wrote this book, the first review that came back, or like the first editorial review they said, oh, we love Lionel. Could you write more of Lionel? Could we see more of his home life? And I made a de deliberate decision and I pushed back on that and said no, because this book needs to be written the way teachers experience their students and we do not get to follow our kids home. We don't get to see whether they're sleeping well enough, whether their home is safe, the quality of the food they're getting, the quality of the role models around them. We can only ever guess at that. And I wanted readers to have that same experience. So just that sort of sense of something could be happening here, but we will never really know what. And I remember there was a moment in the story where Derek is really thinking about what should we do here? Do I do something about it? Do I have a duty of care here? There's just lots of little things, but nothing big enough to point to. And then he sits down and goes through a process on the computer whether he should report something or not. And that was so interesting because I actually logged on and went through that reporting process as though this fictional character was real. 
And that's the result I got, which was document and monitor. And based on the information that the teachers had, that's that's what the systems in place would have instructed them to do, to document and monitor. Whereas when all the truth is revealed and we discovered that Lionel's family are sleeping rough and are really homeless in a very significant way, they're not couch surfing, they're not in insecure housing, they are sleeping under a bridge you know, that is absolutely reportable and absolutely important. And yet the teachers don't know that they don't have that piece of information to be able to report on it. And potentially even when they did have that information, it could well have still been too late. So it really just shows how difficult it is for teachers to get access to services and for those services to talk to one another, always frustrated by the lag between services, even when you do report something or, you know, you see a kid in your class and you're like, pretty sure this child has dyslexia or autism or, you know, some kind of undiagnosed need. And then the lag time in getting the services and the access to that child, I knew that that needed to be in the book because that is something that is so beyond teacher's control and yet it impacts their work all the time, every day. It sure does. And it's sad to think that for so many educators, we know that if a student comes in in foundation or prep and we can spot some things, it's going to take at least till the end of year one to get a solid team around them. Like That is the current reality working in education in Australia. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, I always enjoyed that moment when, because I often talk kindergarten or prep or whatever they're called in the various states. I'm always amused. I'm, I believe it's up around the Northern Territory and they're called, call them trannies because I think it's transition year. Doesn't that sound awful, the trannies? Anyway, I always found it sort of a moment of victory early on in term one when the year one teacher would come to me and say, Gab, this class, those kids you had, oh my goodness. And it's like, yeah, I know because you know, that interesting moment, those kindergarten kids, they come to you with no real backstory, a little bit of information maybe from the preschool they went to, but nothing else. They're unknown quantity. So you haven't been able to group them and separate personality traits or learning needs or anything. They're just as they are lumped in together. And then you're seeing all these needs. You're like, that needs diagnosing. Pretty sure that one needs testing. This one's really far behind, you know, and you start putting into place all these things that then future teachers will have the benefit of the work that you did and the support of you as the kindergarten teacher just did the hard slog just going, oh, my God, it feels like whack-a-mole, you know, like just the, this one, we need to deal with that one, we need to deal with that one. Oh, they keep popping up. So, yeah, it was always a satisfying moment, term one, when that year one teacher would come and say, Gab, you deserve a medal. That was they are a tough crew and thank goodness I, I've got – teacher aides and learning support people in with me. I don't know how you were doing it. And it's like, yep, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, and it's also a testament to that experience over time of being able to track patterns and even ask simple questions. Oh, when was the last time you had a hearing test? So like just finding out all this information. And it makes me think of one of my favorite principals that I had the joy of working with. And she always reminded me that in secondary, we can feel like we're quite special because we're secondary teachers with a particular content area. And particularly in senior years, we can feel like quite special that we're the senior years teacher. And she always reminded me that 
everything lands on the primary education. Secondary is secondary to that. And within that primary structure, those early years are absolutely everything. So true. And this is why so much of how our system is structured is troubling for me because, you know, a kid, for example, comes out of secondary school with a, say they get a great result on their HSC and then all that data that's gathered goes, oh, well, this, this secondary school produces great results on HSC. And I'm like, who taught them to read? Like, where, where did that come from? You know, it was all built over 13 years of time. It was a collective team effort. And so when we pin all that data on this particular school at this point in time, I'm like, well, that's just not an accurate reflection of what went on at all. There were, there's so much more to that picture. But I had a beautiful anecdote come my way from a parent who came up to me and was telling me about her son's first term in high school. Uh, a textbook was given out and her son said to the teacher, I've already read this textbook, uh, this book. It was a novel. And her son said, I've already read this book. And the teacher said, gave him another book. And he said, oh, I've read that one too. And she ended up saying, well, why don't you select a book? And he chose something quite difficult. And she said to him, you are a really incredible reader. And this kid, his name was Sam, he said, yeah, because my teacher taught me. And she said, oh, and who was your teacher? And she was expecting him to name his year six teacher. And he said, Mrs. Stroud, in kindergarten, she taught me to read. And I was so thrilled to hear that story because it just really showed me what a gift kindergarten teachers and those early year teachers give to kids. And it's often not sort of acknowledged, you know, later on, the knock-on effect of that, the ripple effect. I had made him a reader um, so much so that he was just churning through the books and the year seven teacher couldn't keep them up for him. And I, that just warms my heart. And that he remembered that, that he acknowledged that was just joyful. And it highlights the things that matter most. And the things that matter most, we can't put on the brochure. We can't put in our stats. It's that feeling of connection, that feeling of impact, and being there for each other as colleagues and being there for our students. Yeah, it's all about relationships. And I think that confounds people because it sounds so simple and yet really deep complex problems often have very, very simple solutions. And, and we as humans just go, let's complicate that and, and make it more difficult than it needs to be. But at the end of the day, for me, so much of teaching and learning and quality education and healthy schools and happy teachers and thriving students all comes back to relationships and the quality of the relationship and the time that's allowed for relationships to develop and flourish. And this was really tested in the book as we saw Lionel's health decrease and their family system was really fractured and there was lots of question marks. And there's a part in the book where we find out that Lionel does pass away. And in that moment, I could barely breathe. That whole scene, I'm sure everyone listening to this has read the book and that feeling of, I feel like I'm there. I am under that bridge. I'm having this experience. 
And that was such a touching moment for the whole community. And it also made the whole community stop to think, what have we done? We have forgotten what matters and his family has slipped through the cracks. And I think this is where the idea of the bridge is actually quite important because Lionel does die under that bridge where he and his family have been living. And as I wrote the book, I grew a particular fondness for bridges because I started to spend a lot of time under bridges. I needed to know what life would be like if you were a vulnerable person living under a bridge. So I would go to different towns and walk around under bridges and, um, you know, they're a beautiful place to, to be actually because you'll always find signs of life. That uh, Under a bridge is often someone's home. I would often see artwork. There'd be graffiti. There's always signs of life. Um, also frightening as well, you know, because it's, it's not a place that we're meant to live. I'm sure of that. And the bridge in the book is an effort to sort of explore this idea of how do we get someone from one place to another and more specifically from one side to another if we make a bold assumption that low socioeconomic status and a vulnerable financial and housing status is not ideal, if we could agree on that, then how do we improve that situation? And what I wanted to show was it's not as simple as just building a bridge. It's not as simple as just going, what works? Okay, we'll blanket roll that out. You know, what works? Oh, it's standardized testing. Let's test all the kids in year three. What is it? Year three, five, nine, seven and nine. And we'll test their literacy. And if it's no good, we'll improve it. That bridge is, it doesn't work. It's not effective. It's not going to have the outcome that you want because the context matters. The relationship matters. We need to start spending time going underneath the bridge. We need to start spending time going into the context of where our students are and meeting them at their point of need, which is what we know good pedagogy is. You get to know your learner, you find out where they're at, and then you give them what they need to take the next step and the next step. So essentially how I imagine it is learners are creating their own bridges into futures that they desire because their desired future may not be on the affluent other side of the bridge. Their desire may just be to live a life similar to how I was raised and have a few kids and, and be a good family and community member. And they might well be really happy on a particular side of the bridge. And we need to be okay with that as well. Yes. And really that idea of spending time under the bridge, walking in people's shoes, and in the aftermath of this situation, you saw how each of the staff members had to really recalibrate, where am I? What's important? And you also saw towards the end some real personal growth in each of the characters through this whole year of beauty and brutality. I think it's important to note that as Lionel's situation was declining and plummeting downwards, a particular thing was happening for the teachers, which was the demands on them was, were inclining and escalating. So you have this tension of this and this happening. And when that happens, the teachers are going in a different direction to their students. We can't do that thing where we keep our eye 
on the thing that matters most. We can't focus our attention on where it should be. And afterwards, after that terrible event with the loss of Lionel, the teachers see that. They can see with perfect clarity that their attention was on climbing this insurmountable summit of teacher registration and the school audit and parents suing the school and a journalist writing difficult articles about education. They could see how they got tangled in that when they should have been observing this student and keeping their eyes on that. It's a very profound moment of reflection for them. They are all racked with guilt and regret, but there is also a beautiful sharpening and a clarity for them on what matters most, where their heart is, what good teaching looks like, what good learning looks like, how to care and how to have compassion. And still they are left with the challenge of, well, how do I do that while still preserving themselves? I couldn't quite get the answer to that. That's that's your domain, Meg. That's what you do in your work with this podcast, because I think that's the perpetual struggle for teachers. But you know, when we get that clarity and that moment of this relational work is very challenging and difficult, and yet it really matters when teachers can can be in that space and think about that space, that's that's a good thing. You know, while ever they get distracted from that, there's going to be troubling outcomes. But while ever they can sort of sit in that discomfort of, I'm called to care and the care is challenging, then we know that they're in the right place to serve the needs of their students. Yes, and each of those teachers, I thought, gosh, I would love it if my sons were in their classrooms. The big-hearted who deeply, deeply care about their work. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Gabby, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yes. I am inspired by? I am inspired by those who write. I get such richness and joy from reading, so I am inspired by those who write. When life feels hard? It probably is. An underrated skill is? Listening. And I am looking forward to? The weekend. How did I go? Did I get them correct? Fabulous. If I had my stickers, I would give you a sticker. Us teachers, we love a sticker, love a stamp. And thank you. Thank you for being a voice for the teachers who are just too tired and too busy doing what matters to be able to articulate what's going on and to be able to give the general public an insight into what it means to be a teacher through all of your work. You're an incredible advocate for educators, not just here in Australia, but across the globe. And we need more of these conversations because the future of the world depends on the quality of education. So thank you for doing this work. Thank you for writing this book and giving us that sense of we're not alone in this, that there's a lot of us big-hearted educators out there that are doing our best to put one foot in front of the other. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thanks to you, Meg, because you facilitate these conversations that really matter and are so important. We're lucky to have you. thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Gabby and I am so inspired by her compassion and care for young people and the adults that care for them. The Things That Matter Most is now available in store and online. 
and would make the perfect gift for the teachers and book lovers in your life. To learn more about Gabby and the wonderful work she does in the world, visit the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 108. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.